Thanks for listening to the Q&A podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Hello and welcome back to our third Q&A podcast, exploring the intersection of science and faith. If you've been tracking with us, you know that last episode, uh, we took time to explore the history of faith and science. And we tried to demonstrate that there's no underlying tension between faith and science as a discipline. That in a sense, uh, science actually emerged from uh, Christian faith and was powered by uh, men of faith whose belief in an intelligent creator actually motivated them to do science. And so while there is no tension between faith and science as a discipline, we noted that there is incredible tension between faith and naturalism. Because while faith in God says that there is a creator behind the universe, naturalism or atheism says that there is nothing at all behind the universe. Uh, that nothing exists outside of matter and energy, that nothing has a purpose or meaning, that it's all a glorious accident. Everything is governed by random chance and undirected processes. Uh, And there is incredible tension uh, between that sort of atheistic naturalism and faith in God. They are completely antagonistic uh, toward one another. And I think that's the fuel uh, behind a lot of uh, the debates that uh, we get sucked into. Uh, but it's worth noting uh, that both faith in God uh, and atheism require uh, a leap of faith, so to speak. Uh, that there is a sense in which uh, science as a discipline uh, is almost, I almost think of it like a, like a trampoline. <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. And you can uh, explore that discipline and you can engage in that discipline. You can enjoy uh, that discipline. Uh, but if you want to make uh, a metaphysical or, con- or religious conclusion uh, about reality, then you actually have to take a leap off of that trampoline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we stick with that analogy, you can kind of bounce and leap one way uh, into theism and Mm -hmm. belief in a creator God behind the universe. Uh, Or you can uh, take a jump off the other side and land in atheism and say, hey, there's actually nothing at all uh, behind the universe. But both of them uh, are leaps of faith into a religious conclusion is the way that I would frame that. So naturalism, we would say, is not a discipline. Uh, Naturalism is more accurately a religion. Uh, just as mm-hmm. Christianity is a religion. Atheism uh, is, a, uh, is its own religion, and it requires an incredible leap of faith. I'm actually going to argue a greater leap of faith uh, to jump that way into the atheist camp than it does to uh, see God at work in the universe. Uh, but that's sort of another topic mm-hmm. for another day, uh, or maybe another podcast even further down the road. Uh, But for today, uh, we are going to continue in our exploration of the tension, or at least the perceived tension, between science and faith. And what I want us to do today is to take on the controversial topic of the age of the earth. Uh, Science seems to be saying one thing about the age of the universe and the age of planet earth. And when you read the opening chapters of the Bible, they certainly seem to be saying something very different. And so the question I want to pose is, is there tension between the biblical account and the scientific account? And if so, how do we navigate that tension or or live in that tension? And so that's what we'll be wrestling with today. And I'm going to propose that we start with the scientific scientific consensus, Mm -hmm. if I can say that word, Uh, if only because it's easier to pin down in some ways. Uh, than biblical interpretation. But we'll, we'll try and pin that down. Hey, what is science telling us about the age of the universe mm-hmm. and the age of the earth? And then maybe move into 
uh, biblical interpretation. So I'm here again with uh, Kelly Walters and Matthew Crossgree. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's and yeah. so I will uh, pose that question to you guys. What is uh, current scientific theory telling us about the age of the universe and the age of the earth? Uh, you know, I'm going to start by um, taking a small, don't worry, Matt, just a small um, <laughs> kind of a, a, a backtrack because you were talking about leaps of faith. And I think there's a misconception in science in that um, for, for a lot of people, especially for lay uh, students or, or uh, lay scientists, that, that science works this way. You accumulate facts, you do research, and then you come to proof. And a lot of times my students will you know, will talk to me about that, about Science has proven this or that. And there's times we could perhaps say that, especially with chemistry experiments or physics experiments, we can do over and over and over and over again. And we, we find out what the principles are. But a lot of science, especially as we're going to do today, talking about looking back in time, looking how the universe developed, let's say, um, talking about evolution or any of those things that we may, may, may do. Um, the, the scientific model, even the atomic theory, is really looking at a model. And so you, the evidence is put together to build a model. And, and science, the scientists, if they're actually thinking, using the, the per, proper uh, understanding of science, um, it, they're looking at a model. They don't necessarily know. They, don't, they haven't proven this model is, is uh, beyond any doubt the way it works. In fact, good science is, has a healthy skepticism. Mm -hmm. So when we talk, like right now, we're going to be talking about the age of, of the universe. That's built on mo a model, um, and there's accumulated evidence perhaps to support that model, but that's still a model. Mm -hmm. And then like anything else, you have to take, take a step of faith to, to um, believe that that model is the best explanation perhaps. Uh, but we've seen through the history of science that often new information, new ideas will come, come about and then the model has to be revised or sometimes totally thrown out. So good science should be skeptical, should always be looking for, is there any other explanation? Right. Which I think puts, puts um, Christians that have faith in, in good stead because they can, um, uh, it's, it's, it's totally fair scientifically to be questioning uh, whatever the conclusions or whatever the current models are. Mm -hmm. So even that, we're just talking, we're going to be talking mm -hmm. about um, science models about the universe. So I just want to right. throw that in there. Yeah. So I think along with that, we have a high degree of confidence at this point yes. in, in many of these standard models and the consensus that the scientific community has. Uh, but they're always doing further experimentation and gathering new evidence and trying to see, does this fit with our current model? And mm -hmm. if so, then that would give us you know more confidence still. And if it doesn't, then what parts of our model need to be revised or uh, thrown out completely. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so when, as far when, as so yeah. as of today, recognizing that models change, mm -hmm. what are current models and sort of the evidence that we have to support those in terms of how old is the universe, how old is the Earth? Well, starting with the universe, we would put that at about thirteen point eight billion years old mm -hmm. uh, from you know from the moment it started to now, and the Earth itself at about four point six mm -hmm. billion years old. Okay. And how uh, did did people arrive at those conclusions? Like, what sort of evidence were they gathering to say, "Yeah, this is why we think it's this old"? That's a that's a big big question. Um, yeah. a, a number of different things, but I um, let, let's talk about the universe itself. The as far as the age of that, um, <clears throat> when we look out at uh, distant stars and, and distant galaxies. Um, we see for for because of studies of redshifts and and which is a, a you know a, a whole discussion we would have about that about how that can give an indication of how far away mm -hmm. or how fast the the uh, galaxy is moving from us, uh, but from from that um, from uh, looking at uh, at things that we can see the distance and then comparing to but we can use using parallax we can determine what the distances might be for some things that are relatively close. And then seeing what their red shifts or blue shifts might be. Um, the the bottom line is we see the universe. We, we do any estimates of of what um, it looks like is the uh, the rate of uh, speed and, and and direction and so forth of the different uh, distant bodies. We find that the universe seems to be expanding. Mm -hmm. 
and those can be measured, the, the expansion rates, we find out that the we look at things that seem to be um, the furthest away and they seem to be expanding um, faster. Mm-hmm. And so um, the logical conclusion, if we make the assumption that uh, what we see is what um, has, um, is consistent with what was happening in the, the laws of haven't been changed or whatever laws of nature, then we can kind of run the, the tape back in time. Okay, so I look out my window, you know, so through speak. my very high-powered telescope. Right. Uh, I don't know what all these shifts are, but I'm yeah. watching these things in in the universe, and everything is spreading out. Right. Yes. Everything's shooting away from the center, so to speak, yes. at a, at a from high, everything else, at a high speed. In a sense, everything, almost everything else. Everything's spreading from everything else. Right. So we say, if everything's spreading out, that means the further you go back in time, the closer they are together. Right. So if I could run the universe in reverse for 13.8 billion years, then it would collapse into a single point in time and space. Yeah, right. so an analogy I've heard for this is um, something like raisin bread. Oh, that's what I was going to okay. use. Okay, uh, I stole. you're good. Oh, Go okay. for it. <laughs> All right. If you've got a dough of raisin bread that's yes. baking in the oven and you can actually measure the rates of expansion mm-hmm. and then you give that to somebody else who didn't actually see it happening but they see how far apart the raisins are from each other now totally and then they use these rates of expansion just as the dough rises and and run it backwards they could say oh you put it in the oven you know this many minutes ago right. that sort of thing so that's exactly what we do with the universe and what i would add to what kelly was saying is as we look out into uh, space in all directions, we're seeing the light that's reaching us right now that was produced by those objects back in time. Okay. You know, and and the farther away they are, the more time it took for that light to reach us. So the advantage that uh, astronomers have when they look into the night sky, they're literally looking at events, witnessing events that took place in the past. Right. Because it took, it took, if it takes 10 billion light years to get to us, then you're actually watching something that happened 10 billion years ago. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're, we understand that the object we're looking at right now probably doesn't exist at all, and certainly not in the state it appears to us, because we're looking at its past. And when we do that, we can measure these expansion rates at different distances, which corresponds to different amounts of time in the mm-hmm. past. Yes. So we actually do know those expansion rates for the entire history of the universe, which is pretty cool. Right. And, well, and I like the raisin bread thing because you guys are losing me a little bit <laughs> yeah, sure. with, with some of the language. Toasted there. is really good, yes. too. Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to add, too, that, um, that we can look at certain um, glass uh, or gas clouds called nebula, nebula uh, at, at long distances um, away, and, and we literally have been able to see stars born in our time we see them born and we but we know that where that is and so forth that we can estimate the time that it that would be happening so it happened a long time ago but we're still seeing it so literally you can observe just kind of have some implications about creation uh mm-hmm. and so forth but but one of the things i want to bring up is that which is really fascinating especially for christians is that when the theory was proposed i i believe it was um in 1920s or whatever just this idea that the universe may be expanding so that maybe it had a beginning. Um, the um, and 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 they they could measure the amount of energy that it would have produced. We see the energy in terms of moving bodies now, and physics can tell us that what the energy must have been to get the whole universe expanding in the first place. There's a, of course an incredible amount of energy, mm-hmm. and and then we've got gravity that would resist that and would would um, make the universe not expand or would make the universe slow, slow down. down. And so as they studied those things, they began to, uh, they could um, uh, get an estimate literally calculating what that energy would have been. Mm-hmm. And then this is the fascinating thing. From that, they made predictions that if there was a, literally a big bang, and it's not a bad term at all, an explosion at the very beginning, that they could cal- they were able to calculate what they estimate, the, the amount of energy, and then what there, there would be a radiation uh, echo, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah, from like, the bomb going off. From the bomb right. going yeah. off. If yeah, I'm a yeah. long ways away, literally when Mount St. Helens blew up, there were people from hundreds of miles away that could hear the oh, sound. Oh, interesting. Huh. Uh, and so they, 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 were, they were close enough they could hear the explosion. Right. So in a, it's not sound, but in terms of uh, 
terms of a, a, a radio signal or a radio, uh, um, a radio data, they were able to predict what the amount of um, or what that echo would be like and the energy level. Mm-hmm. And so then they, um, scientists uh, decided to look for it. And so they looked for areas in the sky where there is... So, so they were saying, if the universe had a beginning, right. it would take, uh, I almost imagine striking like pool balls or something. Like it would take such an incredible strike. Right. It would take, it, it's this gigantic, unfathomable bomb going yeah. off to start the universe that there should be a radio signal left over from it. An right. echo almost. Right, in, in an echo. Sense. So and let's they, go look for the echo. And they calculated that it should be, uh, Matthew, maybe you can help it. I want to say like two point the signature that should uh, be like 2.7 degrees Kelvin of just leftover heat to use the, you know, a hand grenade goes off and a few minutes later we should be able to detect that this area where it went off is still a little you warmer. You could walk onto the scene and measure the temperature. There's a little warmer the overall because there's so much energy released. Right. And, 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 and zero Kelvin is absolute zero and so that yeah. would be empty space, no temperature, but there should be this leftover and they went out and then there's all kinds of fancy um, uh, data about this. It wasn't just that. It was uh, the exact signature of what it should look like and where it should be distributed and everything. And they found this. And it corresponded exactly to the prediction. Okay. And so what that meant was pretty hard um, evidence that, that they, there's a prediction that there should be the signature in empty space where there are no stars or whatever. And right. everywhere we look, mm-hmm. there should be the same background radiation. And mm-hmm. they found it. And, and it was so profound... Um, that it really disturbed a lot of the astronomers or scientists at the time, particularly those that had an atheist bent, because what that meant was that the universe, if this was true and the Big Bang was true, then the universe actually had a beginning. Mm-hmm. And at the time, a lot of people felt like there was the matter was eternal, uh, and and that what we see is what you know just has always been there. The, the prevailing mm-hmm. scientific view, in right. my understanding, for hundreds or I, I don't know when did when did the steady state? Do you know when that theory emerged? It kind of started with like a Greek. It was like a Greek. Concept, I, don't know, I don't know, right? Exactly. So, for, but, yeah. but the the bottom line is that for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, sort of the prevailing, more scientific, natural philosophy view right. was what we call a steady state universe. So right. the universe has always existed, right, and it will always exist, right, which fits perfectly with materialism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. All that there is is matter and energy. Right. So it's always existed. It's yeah, all there's yeah. ever been. Totally. But it conflicted hugely with the the first line in Genesis, which the yes. very first line of the Bible says, "In the beginning, right, God created the heavens and the earth," right. which which throws everything out yeah. of whack. So for hundreds of years, you had Christians who were saying. We don't agree on everything in Genesis, but we know that the universe had a beginning and yeah. that God created. Only God is eternal. Right. The universe is not. And so for hundreds of years, that would have been this grind, this natural grinding yes. point between the faith community and maybe more of the naturalistic, uh, you know, uh, right. scientific community. It was saying, no, we think it's this way. No, we think it's this right. way. What's remarkable is that that tension was just resolved recently. Yes. I mean, a hundred years, this is like Albert Einstein yeah. had to like figure this stuff out for us. And, and because when, because when I learned it in school, I just thought, well, that makes sense. And we've probably always thought that, but no, 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 mm-hmm. there was actually, it, it, so w- what can, what happened there? Like Albert Einstein was running his numbers and with the steady state universe and saying, Hey, this isn't, this isn't working. The universe couldn't be eternal in the way that we thought it was. Well, one of the things, and, and I'll let Matthew come in here because he may be here we'll to see. jump in. Uh, yeah. But one of the things that um, that it, it meant too is that not only there is a there's a point where where the present universe we have that it began, but there is also it implied because of Einstein's work with general relativity um, that that um, he brought in this concept that time is a dimension in, in itself. Mm-hmm. So you get length mm-hmm. with height, but you also have time, mm-hmm. and that in that space is is part of that dimension. And so it, it, it meant that not only did the present universe have a starting point of its expansion, but it also implied that before that expansion, there was no space, there was no time. Mm-hmm. So literally, there is a beginning of time. Mm-hmm. Because time is connected in, in the Einsteinian world, mm-hmm. right. which I, I don't know if I really understand. But right. time... Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and, and I've, heard, I've heard, it, heard it said that people who say they understand Einstein just prove that they don't understand Einstein or something like that. Yeah, but, um, a lot of things. But, uh, but there, so, so not, not only was there a beginning to 
the planets and the galaxies and so forth, and things are expanding, it meant that there is a single point and there is a single time. And before that, we can't say anything. And it confirmed Genesis so well. Um, in the beginning, God spoke and said to let there be light, which is radiation, by the way. And it confirmed it so well that it really shook up a lot of scientists, apparently, because it sounded too much like Genesis. It sounded right. too mm -hmm. theological. To, to go from a steady state universe yes. to yeah. saying the universe and time itself had a beginning, uh, it, it sounds like there was some resistance from that. And from bits and pieces I've read about Einstein, he mm -hmm. even had this sort of natural resistance because, wait a second, that couldn't be right. Because that's what you know the crazy Christian people have been saying for a very long time. Uh, and it doesn't, it, that, that's not very scientific. Yeah, it's a huge paradigm shift. And kind of back to your your question specifically about the steady state, I'll just say, honestly, I don't know, I couldn't really cite any evidence that they were using for that position. Mm. And I don't know if it's because it's so entirely discarded that it's just not really talked about anymore. I don't know if you have any insight on that, Kelly, but I don't know what uh, they were what they would sort of hang their hat on and say, well, it's steady state because this. I think it was more, well, it made sense. Yeah, it was a philosophical <laughs> the Aristotle sort of thing we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I would think that that could go all the way back to Aristotle where he said, you know, uh, we're looking for perfect shapes and we're looking for perfection and, yeah. and order. And so we've just always been here because it's perfect to be here. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't this, this theory constructed from a mountain of evidence. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of, well, this... We think this makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, to, that, to the credit of the yeah. scientific community, although it may yeah. have been met with resistance, when they really parsed out all the data and they looked at it closely, they you know, had to follow that and mm -hmm. say, all right, well, we may not like it, and I'm sure some of them, <laughs> yeah. some of them more than others, uh, but they followed it, and now that is the consensus. Mm -hmm. so, and, and I actually have yeah. a quote that I want to read uh, awesome. that kind of falls in line with that. This is from uh, an astrophysicist, Robert Jastrow. And so this is kind of, he's writing right around the time that they're figuring out, oh my gosh, there was a big bang. And that means there was something before time and matter and energy. And wow, this is all sort of an uncomfortable conclusion right. to come mm -hmm. to. And so this is what he wrote. He said, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. <laughs> he has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Wow. <laughs> nice. and, and so there was awesome. probably yeah. that sense of like, wait a second, like science has just come to this radical conclusion and now we're sitting uncomfortably right alongside all of these. Oh, I got an email. <laughs> uh, right alongside all of these uh, theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And so uh, there's a sense in which uh, that is actually a remarkable development. When we talk about this, the faith science tension, we can't overlook that. Right. Because for centuries, that was this tension. And only in Einstein uh, was it resolved. And even Einstein himself, uh, I was reading, he kind of put in this steady state universe as sort of a fudge factor. Like he kind of forced it into some of his equations mm -hmm. uh, to avoid the alternative. And then later said, that was the greatest mistake of my life. Mm -hmm. Like, it, But ultimately you're right that science, we can commend scientists mm -hmm. for saying, hey, this is where the evidence is pointing. We wholeheartedly embrace mm -hmm. it. So that, that first great tension um, has been resolved in a sense. Everyone, uh, almost every scientist is now on board with this idea that the scriptures have been proclaiming all along that the universe had a beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but we know that doesn't resolve all of the tension, right? right of course. Because as we uh, read past sentence one of scripture, what we see, what we, what we sense is, oh, wow, I'm reading about a, a very young universe being that God has spoken into creation or into mm -hmm. existence. Uh, and that's not what, what science is, is saying. Science is saying, hey, when we study the universe, it looks like it's, you know, 14 billion years old. And then even when we look at planet Earth, there seems to be signs that it's very old. So can we talk briefly about planet Earth and how do we measure the age of the Earth scientifically? I don't know if we can talk briefly because it's like <laughs> three to four billion years. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so there is an incredible amount of evidence that the Earth is old. Uh, 
for one thing, the vast majority of the Earth's crust is sedimentary. And so the Rocky Mountain Range, for example, is all sedimentary. And that means it's layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of rock that was um, weathered and deposited in the ocean or in, in uh, riverbeds or whatever. And then, um, and then overlain with other, uh, with other rock and, and debris and eventually was under enough pressure and, and that it solidified and made sandstone and, and different sedimentary rocks. And so then that was lifted up, according to the scientific theory, lifted up. And so you have the, the majority of the Earth's crust is not volcanic rocks. Mm -hmm. It's sedimentary. So that in itself. And so in order to, um, so it looks, looks like, well, what would make sense? Well, how did that get there? Well, it accumulated over weathering and over deposits. Right. So e if, each, if each layer, you know, takes 10,000 years to right. lay down mm -hmm. and we've got 10,000 layers or whatever, then we're talking exactly. about a very old planet. Yeah, right. we see evidence of a lot of these processes that would take, left on their own, would take a long, long time right. to form the, the structures and, and landmarks we see right. on Earth. And, and, I, and I will say that one of the... Um, one of the arguments, let's say, for the young Earth creationists that is often used is is a simple argument. Well, the flood. Um, it was a tremendous, you know, deluge of of weathering and so forth, and it happened all at once. Uh, but the the challenge with that of, of using that argument um, scientifically to me is then then it should look like one event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, forty days of water. There would be a lot, right, right, and so right. forth, and and maybe it was a crazy amount, but it should look like that, and so mm -hmm. the deposits should look like. The, the flood deposits and and I there's actually a young earth creationist and I've been in the middle of debates at, at times the years ago young earth creationist that was on the radio and was talking about this and so I called literally called up one of the radio programs <laughs> and challenged him about the um, the white cliffs of Dover that are um, purely um, made it's it's chalk basically that's made of microscopic uh, skeletons of microscopic organisms. Mm -hmm that were deposited in, in there's um and I just looked it up earlier that they're um uh they uh, an a mass of um something like a hundred and uh well up to three hundred and fifty feet high. And that's mm -hmm. that's above the ocean. In some areas it's as deep as uh, five hundred feet. So it's five hundred feet and all it is is these tiny, tiny skeletons that have been added um together in in deposits. With with um, without anything else, and presently, um, the amount of uh, deposits on a, in a given year would be of of the same thing of these microscopic organisms would be about a half of a millimeter, mm -hmm. which is you could hardly see it, just a dusting. Right, right, right. And so again, if you look at that, if that's the rate, right. then the flood doesn't explain that. And so right. there there's an answer that that a young Earth creationist would would give or try to give for something like that. But it has the appearance, and so much of the Earth has the appearance of being very, very old. If you mm -hmm. didn't know anything, if you didn't come in with any other idea, you'd mm -hmm. think, well, it looks like it's... Totally. Then we're seeing evidence for right, an right, old, right. old Earth. Yeah. So we have the yeah. layers, we have the layers, mm -hmm. um, sedimentary layers of the, of mm -hmm. the Earth. And other um, things like that. Yeah. What, what other things would we measure on planet Earth in an attempt to age it? Um, so, sure, yeah. So there's... Um, a common method that people have probably heard of called radiometric dating, where mm -hmm. we look at radioactive isotopes of different elements, um, which just basically means a nucleus of an element or an atom that has a particular number of neutrons. That's mm -hmm. what makes an isotope different from another one. You should teach this. <laughs> Sometimes I do. <laughs> uh, so um, m most of the common materials that we interact with and we're familiar with are, are very stable atoms, meaning they, they, their nuclei don't change. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are some naturally occurring isotopes that do change over time. Okay. Um, and any of the uh, short-lived ones... <clears throat> that would have been naturally occurring have already expired because there's okay. been so much time. So we don't right. really see a lot of short-lived um, natural radioisotopes. But we can create them in labs uh, through various okay. ways and kind of measure how do these things work, uh, what sort of rates do they follow, what sort of principles or laws sort of govern this thing we call half-life mm -hmm. because it turns out that they decay with half of the amount of what's there 
which okay. is a really weird way. So you're measuring how atoms are changing over time. Exactly. And there's certain atoms that change at a very normal rate. And so you say, well, this atom usually lasts a billion years before it starts to decay or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're trying to use those to kind of map out how old the Earth might be. Right. Yeah. And okay. so it's not this steady rate. Like if you watched an icicle melt or something, it would right, just kind right, of right. melt at a... It doesn't matter how much icicle you started with or how much you have now. It's just going to sort of melt at right. the same rate. Whereas this half-life business with uh, radiometric dating, you lose about half of the substance you started with right. over its half-life. So okay. we can compare ratios of the element it started as relative to what it decays or turns into okay. and figure out how many half-lives it's gone through. And so how old it must have been. Okay. So we've got layers of the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got radiometric dating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, anything else that we would use to uh, well, gauge I, the earth? And I want to say with the with the radiometric dating, the most common one is carbon dating. Uh, the problem is, is that it's really used well for uh, dating. Uh, let's say you find a, a, a um, skeleton of a, of a um, person that's buried. You're wondering if they're, you know, if it's a Native American or something. You know? Right. So, yeah. so for fairly recent... Um, uh, dating so anything that has that has a bone in it then you could date it but it only goes back it's only accurate to about 50,000 years okay so I can, half -life I can is carbon fairly, date I yeah. can carbon date which we hear about carbon yes, dates. all the time I yeah. can carbon date up to 50,000 but beyond yes. that yeah. we're, we kind of lose sight because it, it decays fast enough that you wouldn't have any carbon 14 is really what it is right it's but there's the, other the there's other ones, ones that have much but there's other exactly. ones okay and one thing on that though the other ones um, are um, like rubidium and strontium, there's they're they're not they're pretty rare, and so this is something to be said against it that you are, you need to find those rare isotopes mm -hmm. to be able to measure them at all, and so that's one of the issues. So you don't always find them. So you can't just take any old rock totally. and pull it up. So a lot of it's measured. A lot of the dating is measured by uh, by looking at the layers. So we do find in the same area, maybe in another state. We do find in the same what we think same geologic era. Maybe we do find this this rock that we can do radiometric dating, give a date to it, and mm -hmm. then we think, well, okay, the same general layer that's over here in Spokane, mm -hmm. we're going to give it the same date. And the same thing with fossils. Based on the the radiometric dating, we date this type of fossil, the Brachiosaurus or something. Right, we right, date right. it at this date. So here's the same fossil that we we assume is at the same basic era. Right. So we see the fossil, and then we give that rock layer that so same I, date. So I travel over to China. I find a stegosaurus skeleton next to you know this perfect isotope that yeah. says, ah, 2 billion years ago. Yes. And then I say, well, any stegosaurus that I find anywhere, I'll assume, was also lived 2 billion years ago. Is if, that kind of like a rough sort kind of, of... Especially if we know that stegosaurus had a fairly narrow time, time Oh, they frame weren't around they very lived, long. Right. Okay. And they find... They, sure. And there's other things, and you're comparing not just that, but other things, life forms you find around that area. Right. So, but so, so a lot of the dating... So just to, to be clear, it's not like I, like I tell students that you, you know, pick up a rock and it says made in China, you know, 2 billion years oh, ago. Oh, right. You know, yeah. 2 billion... <laughs> BC. It, yeah. um, so, so a lot of it's a little bit of dating off something, off something, off something. Right. So you can definitely be critical of that method. Mm -hmm. But once again, just like the layering or, or whatever, you, you do get an old earth if mm -hmm. you do use that dating. Right. So a parallel that I've heard with the universe is someone proposed, actually, the universe may have been expanding at a different rate in the past than it is now. And that could potentially shrink the timeline from 14 billion all the way down to like 7 billion, which you're like, whoa, that's a huge, that's a big difference. It's cut in half, but you're still at, even if that were true, it's still at 7 billion years. So even if you play with some of these factors, we're still talking about a very old universe and a very old earth, right? And without getting too uh, deep here, maybe we already have, yeah. but when you start messing with some of those factors, there's a lot of other implications, like how much energy would have been carried with mm -hmm. that uh, background radiation mm -hmm. we kind of talked about. And so what that would have done to forming planets or galaxies. Right. And would it have even been possible to coalesce into a solar system? Well, maybe not if mm -hmm. the universe were only 7 billion years. Right. So there's so, a lot so of other things you have to interpret with it. parallel exactly. theories across different yeah. fields that are all sort of relating to each other and coming together yeah. with some of these numbers. Is that right? Sound right. right. And, yeah. and, and with that thing about, okay, so is the speed of light, let's say, has that changed? That's been proposed 
know, that maybe it's not going the same speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the expansion rate isn't the same. Maybe the radiometric dating isn't the same. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's 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 fair to question any of that. Like, what are totally. the assumptions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but at the same time, from a from a scientific standpoint, you, you are um, with with I guess integrity of the field. You're tr- you you have to go on what we see now. That's just kind of a basic principle. Mm-hmm. So so. We can't just make up. Well, I want the rate to be faster a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Well, you you can want all you want, but that's really yeah. not scientific thinking. Mm-hmm. We 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 base it on what we see now, and we're making an assumptions, but a fair assumption that it's we're going to go with that because we don't have any reason not to, right? Or to think that it somehow changed, unless there was evidence that it has. Sure, and yeah. so that's again to bring it back to astronomy for yeah. a moment. You can actually test those sorts of things by looking at different distant objects which go back in time a certain amount. And if mm-hmm. you say, well, then the speed of light might have changed, and so that throws off your your dating of those. But again, mm-hmm. what sort of other pervasive effects might that have? And so one thing, another thing that astronomers do is run simulations of their models in computers mm-hmm. where they can run something 10,000 times and see you know, what's the most likely result if I change some parameters like the speed of light or something. Mm-hmm. And we can compare that to what we observe today mm-hmm. and see that. Um, one <clears throat> one thing I might throw in there just from the biblical uh, point of view for a second, I can't remember the exact verse, but I believe it's in Jeremiah. Uh, it says that, the, that God fixed all of the laws mm-hmm. that govern the heavens, right? He, yeah. he created them and he created them they're the they're the way they are now that they mm-hmm. were when mm-hmm. he created them. They have been fixed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. from a biblical standpoint, we would expect that sort of uniformity uniformity of right. physical laws throughout right. time as well. Okay. Awesome. And I know there's a lot more we could say yeah. about that, but I, I do want to turn the corner now and uh, jump into some biblical interpretation. Because we can mess with some of these, you know, poke and prod at some of these theories mm-hmm. a little bit. But if you have a scientific consensus that says the Earth is at four, or sorry, the universe is 14 billion years old. You know, the Earth is four billion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a huge difference between, say, a 10,000 years very young universe and 14 billion. So even yes. if you poke and prod, I don't think you're going to magically connect the dots unless mm-hmm. you really have, you know, a, right. a pretty substantial theory about what well, nothing has behaved in the past the way it does today, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Uh, or God sort of just jump-started the universe uh, in this place where it looks like it's been in process or, or something like that. Uh, and even then, you have a, a lot of work to do. And so uh, the question I, I want to turn to now is how on earth do we close that gap? Uh, as as you know, followers of Jesus who are passionate about science, uh, and how, how do Christians go about closing that gap between what looks like a very young earth in, in Genesis uh, and what seems to be a very old Earth, an old universe, uh, when we look to science. And so, uh, in my thinking about it, I think you, you've basically got two routes that people take in an attempt to reconcile those things or to close that gap. Uh, and the first is to take scientific theories as sort of the only reliable truth and then uh, sort of reinterpret Scripture through that lens. And so, you've got people who will say, hey, well, clearly, you know, the universe is 14 billion years old, and therefore, uh, the scriptures must not mean what we thought it meant. Uh, Perhaps each day that's mentioned in uh, Genesis is actually an era, or it's actually a billion years, and it wasn't uh, a literal day. Uh, Perhaps God used uh, evolution to make humans, uh, but Genesis is just uh, poetry. Uh, that's designed to capture some aspect of God's character and and his role as the creator. Uh, Perhaps all of this is figurative or uh, metaphorical or poetic. And so you've got several uh, biblical camps of interpretation that have gone that direction. Hey, clearly whatever science says is right. Clearly we need to re uh, just have a totally new paradigm for the way that we interpret scripture. Uh, Then uh, you've got what I would call uh, sort of the classic Christian view of the last couple of decades, which we call young earth creationism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in part, young earth creationists were reacting against Mm -hmm. all of the the figurative metaphorical views. And in a sense, they're kind of saying, hey, come on, guys, like you've gone soft. 
You know, like you're, you're letting science trump scripture. You're not taking this book seriously. Uh, Genesis is narrative. It's not uh, poetry. It, it's not just figurative. It's not just metaphor. Uh, stop watering down uh, scripture. It's telling us something literal and true. So guys, stick to your guns. Like stand mm -hmm. by this uh, book that we have, uh, which is awesome. And I actually love that angle. I think in many ways, in sort of their attitude and approach, uh, they're dead on. But they were still forced to reckon, young earth creationists were still forced to reconcile Genesis with the modern scientific findings. And what young earth creationists have done is they've assumed that Genesis 1 is literal and scientific. They've assumed that uh, verse 1 is a title introducing the rest of the chapter. And they've assumed that the rest of chapter one is talking about the entire uh, planet or really the entire universe. And so if you make all of those assumptions, uh, what you end up with in young earth creationism is an account of the entire physical universe being brought into being in uh, seven days. And by day six, you've got human beings. And so uh, oftentimes in the Christian world, we feel like we're sort of forced to choose between those two routes, right? So do I go the figurative, metaphorical route, uh, take all science as truth, and then sort of reinterpret scripture uh, through that lens? Or do I go the more literal narrative route and end up trying to defend the fact that the universe is only 10,000 years old? Uh, or I guess there's an option three, which is, oh, I'm just going to kind of chuck the Bible completely and um, just kind of take on naturalism or, or whatever. Uh, but this, I think, is often the crossroads that we find ourselves at. We feel like there's this tension when we open the scriptures as to, do I just say this is all figurative or, or poetic, or do I kind of go down the road of saying that the universe is 10,000 years old? And uh, to make things more complicated... If you go sort of the young earth creationist route and say the universe is 10,000 years old, then what you've kind of uh, committed yourself to is coming up with counter theories about uh, how the universe works. And we've kind of touched on that mm -hmm. a little bit, mm -hmm. but you have to come up with a counter theory for a lot of stuff. So you're saying, hey, the layers of the earth look this way, but it was really just the flood and the continents haven't really been drifting the same speed and light didn't behave different, like light behaved differently in the past and the universe used to expand much faster. And you're, you're kind of having to do a lot of legwork and saying, well, mainstream science says this, but let me tell you how it actually works because mm -hmm. I know, you know what Genesis says. And, and uh, we could probably go on and on and on, but you have within young earth creationism, I think a lot of kind of the counter theories and, and poking and prodding. Uh, and some of that is really valuable. I think mm -hmm. it, because and it should be accepted by science to have someone walk into the room and say, well, I'm going to question everything that you guys. I'm going to shake this a little bit mm -hmm. and see if there's weaknesses in it. And so and you have people saying, hey, if the earth was actually, you know, four four point five billion years old, you'd have way more sediments in the ocean or it would be way saltier than mm -hmm. it actually is. Or um, you could get all the helium that we have. Uh, on earth in thousands of years and not billions and you know he comets actually disintegrate at this rate and you can kind of go on and on yeah. with some of the counter theories and mm -hmm. and other things that they've pointed out uh, and they're saying hey this all has happened in thousands of years and not billions and, and i've got you know 250 different counter theories to your mainstream scientific theories and now you've really arrived i think at the modern day tension uh, and you you've got all of these people in particular young people who, I, who I've encountered who are saying, hey, I really like this Jesus guy, uh, but if I believe in Jesus, do I also have to believe in all of this other stuff? A am I also signing on to kind of a young earth and the 250 counter theories and kind of the, the knockdown drag out fight that that route has become? And man, I've, I've lived in that tension, right? I've, mm -hmm. I've felt that tension and I actually... Um, I was thinking about, I was, had this memory come rushing back of uh, a, a dear a family member of mine who I was sharing the gospel with. And here I am sharing Jesus and death and resurrection and new heavens and new earth. And you can have this hope and all, uh, laying out the gospel. And it was really resonating with them, uh, maybe for the first time. 
And then we kind of turned our attention to the Bible and he said, well, wait, wait, wait. Doesn't that book say that the universe is 6,000 years old? And that was like, that was their hang up. It was mm-hmm. like, well, oh, wow, I'm really compelled by Jesus. Yeah. But isn't that what uh, the scriptures say? And so uh, before we close, I'd like to throw out one more potential path through the tension uh, that I've personally found very compelling. And so in all of my study of the book of Genesis and interpretive uh, theories and, and everything, the one that's really caught my attention is called historical creationism or what I would call the promised land theory because I think that's a little easier to remember. And uh, if you've been tracking with us on uh, Sundays or the Sunday podcast, you know that we recently took a Sunday to unpack three different theories of Genesis chapter 1 And uh, the promised land theory was one of them. And so I'm not going to kind of rehash the entire thing here. But basically, you've got a Hebrew scholar uh, named John Salehammer. And he wrote this book, uh, Genesis Unbound. And it's a brilliant book. And if you find any of this stuff interesting, you really have to read it. Uh, There's no way I can sum up hundreds of his pages in a a couple of minutes. Uh, But... Salehammer's take on Genesis 1 is entirely based on the original Hebrew language of the Bible. And he says, hey, don't look at science, uh, look at scripture. Interpret Genesis 1 carefully and purely through the lens of scripture. And when he did that, his take on Genesis chapter 1, uh, his take is that Genesis chapter 1 includes two acts of God. And I think this is important. So he's saying, hey, the first act of God is actually verse 1 which is not a title for what is about to happen in that chapter, but rather it's a summary of what has already happened. So verse one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Salehammer points out that in the beginning uh, was a specific Hebrew phrase, which meant uh, a prior unspecified period of time, a previous era. Uh, The Hebrews had words for Uh, a beginning. Uh, They had words for sort of the starting pistol that goes off at the beginning of a race, for a moment when something begins. But they didn't use that word. Uh, They actually very intentionally Mm. left the period of time unspecified. Uh, So according to Salehammer, hey, it could have been any length of time in which God created. And so in this prior era, in the beginnings, uh, God created out of nothing, a whole bunch of stuff. It could have been days. It could have been uh, billions of years. Uh, The text isn't clear. Uh, The text doesn't say. uh, What did God create during this previous era? Well, verse 1 tells us. It says God created the heavens and the earth, which was a very specific Hebrew phrase meaning everything. Uh, All of physical reality, everything you can see, He created all of it out of nothing in an unspecified prior period of time, which serves as sort of the background or the lead up to what we really care about, the creation of the promised land and the creation of humanity. And so in Salehammer's view, the only truly new things that emerge out of nothing during the seven days are fruit trees and human beings. And he says, hey, according to the Hebrew text, those are the truly new things. Everything else was created in act one, in the prior time. And so by the time we get to verse two, what we find is that the promised land, not all of planet Earth, but the promised land is underwater. It's covered in clouds and darkness. It is uncultivated, uninhabited, and useless. Uh, It is tohu vavohu uh, is the phrase in Hebrew. And so God takes seven literal 24-hour days in order to shape and order the promised land, separating water and land, uh, causing previously created plants and animals to inhabit that space, and revealing why he made the sun and the moon and the stars long ago. Uh, He actually had humanity in mind all along, and, and humanity is about to come into being. And so he takes six days, to make the promised land or the Garden of Eden in which humanity was intended to dwell intimately with him in his presence in a relationship of love and trust and obedience and blessing. 
And so I know that's a, a lot to take in, sort of a fire hose uh, sense there. But if that's true, uh, then Genesis 1 actually flows beautifully with the rest of the Old Testament. And when you zoom out after kind of interpreting Genesis 1 according to uh, Sailhammer, you zoom out and then start considering modern scientific theories. And there's actually no conflict at all with the biblical account. The universe could be 10,000 years old, uh, but it also could be 14 billion years old. Uh, and according to Sailhammer, hey, the Bible doesn't tell us because it's not interested in that question. Uh, believe it or not, the Hebrews didn't care. Like they, they weren't interested. And so verse 1 just says, hey, God made it all in an unknown period of time. But now let me tell you where things get really good. Let me tell you about the human story. And that's where verse 2 picks up, with the creation of the promised land, with the creation of the first humans. Uh, and if you want to learn more about that view, then read the book. It's, uh, it's awesome. Uh, and I'm not saying that Sailhammer is infallible uh, or that I'd stake my life on his theory of Genesis, but I think he's done a stunning job of unpacking the Hebrew. And the reason I, I mention it in depth in this conversation is that it coincidentally, uh, as a side effect, sort of releases every ounce of tension concerning the age of the earth and the origins uh, of the universe. So that's the theory that, that I've found most compelling. Uh, I certainly respect those who are a young earth creationist and who believe uh, the universe as a whole is, is very young. I think that their attitude towards scripture itself is actually really good uh, and healthy. We'd probably just disagree on what scripture is actually saying. What, we'd both say, hey, this is a very real narrative, but what was it intended to convey? What's the scope of, of what it's talking about? And so that's the short version, actually, uh, of kind of the tension of the age of the earth. And so we've toyed a bit with, hey, could the scientific theories be off? Um, sure, some of them could be. Um, will they change over time? Uh, I'm certainly hopeful. I think all scientists are hopeful that they will continue to develop and change over time. Um, could God have created the universe, the entire universe, in seven days and made it look very old? I think I would actually say yes, like that's theoretically possible and kind of fits within, you know, theologically, my view of God is an unlimited one. So could he have done that? Um, yeah, I'd have to say that's possible. Um, but for me, it comes down to, hey, what are the scriptures actually saying? And I think that's where the tension is resolved, at least for me, kind of where I just sense this huge release of tension is with a sail hammer and some of the people who have come alongside him saying, hey, let's let's dive into the Hebrew and figure out what the original audience thought they might have been reading. Um, and, and stuff starts to snap into place for me, at least. Mm -hmm. But um, any final thoughts on kind of the age of the universe, the age of the earth, the tension? I mean, we could have told personal mm -hmm. stories, right, yeah. of the yeah. tension that we sense and that we that we live in sometimes. Any, any closing remarks? I think I would say something along the lines of, um, I would encourage you to hold tight to scripture. Mm -hmm. but perhaps not so tightly to your interpretation necessarily, mm -hmm. um, but to keep an open mind about scripture, about science, and about how they fit together. And I, I'm not suggesting that we water down scripture or you water down your faith or anything like that, um, but to bring it back to your uh, personal story for a moment, Matt, you said, uh, your family member said, well, but doesn't this book say it, mm -hmm. that the universe, the, the, the earth, whatever, is 6,000 years old? Yeah. And no, it, it doesn't come right out and say that, right? right? So if your interpretation is that it is, well, great, we can still get along and have totally. lots of interesting discussions, yeah. right? Yeah, but yeah. my hope would be that no one who's approaching it, maybe they have a background in science, maybe they, they uh, you know, are compelled by the the evidence that the earth is four and a half billion years old and all that. And then that's the reason that they can't mm -hmm. uh, place their faith in Jesus is because totally. they think that book says it's 6,000 years right. old. You Don't know, ever let that's that a tragedy. be the reason. Exactly. Yeah. So w no matter what interpretation you do hold to, um, hold to the scriptures tightly, but loosely to your interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, my comments, just closing comments are that 
uh, I think that we uh, want all you know, have <clears throat> people who are consider themselves um, uh, intellectuals want to be have intellectual integrity. We want to believe the truth, mm-hmm. and I think we should commit ourselves to that just as mm-hmm. a fundamental philosophy, mm-hmm. and not commit or not um, let ourselves fall to. Uh, uh, I guess believing um, things because it's convenient or because uh, our worldview uh, forces us to believe them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would say that both for the science-minded and for the faith-minded people to um, to not assume. So I think I think the errors of of letting um, of either making assumptions go um, unchecked. Or the error of uh, of just thinking that you have it all wrapped up. I think mm-hmm. the errors on on both sides, and and I don't believe we need to uh, give up on pursuing truth. And this is what we talked about last time that that science came out of men who were, and then later women who were pursuing truth, pursuing the evidence. And you said, Matt, mm-hmm. wherever the evidence leads us, mm-hmm. that's where we want to stake our life. Totally. Yeah. And we believe, for example, the resurrection, that there's abundant evidence for the resurrection. And yes. here's something that doesn't make a lot of sense from what we, we don't see people be resurrected every day, of course. <laughs> um, but we believe there's evidence. There's, and, and we believe it's not um, that you have to throw out your, your, um, your brain or your mind when you um, have faith. In fact, yeah. we think that as, as, you, as happened with you, Matt, you came to faith mm-hmm. through looking at evidence right and so i think we're always safe um if we continue to pursue and, and sometimes if we don't know if people ask me well can you explain exactly how mankind developed i don't know i mean so it's okay sometimes to totally. just be in the middle yeah, yeah but here's what i do know i do know that i'm going to follow when the facts lead me in a certain way i want to follow that i don't want to ignore them i don't want to shut my mind down mm-hmm. close my mind down and it happens, like I said, in both worlds. In oh, the totally. scientific community, yeah. there's a narrowing of the mind. In the, and in the faith community, at times, there's a narrowing of the mind. I don't want to do that. Um, and I want to um, to um, be faithful to what that truth leads leads to. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, we believe that, as Matt said a while back, that if you were to pursue um, science with an open mind, we think it will lead you to faith. Totally. Yeah. And uh, and at the same time, um, this person of Jesus is an incredibly compelling um, character that's like no other, that's worthy of following. And mm-hmm. if you pursue w- who he was, and he and he believed in the Old Testament, and you know, and so forth. And so, where there are questions, where there are mysteries, we don't know how this matches with that. I think it's it's okay to suspend and put them on the shelf and continue to look and continue to wonder. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we'll end with that because we have to cut it off. But I'd say we're all coming at it with a sense of humility mm-hmm. uh, and a sense of, of love and actually unity w- within the body of Christ and saying, hey, there's there's room at the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's room at the table for you to bring who you are and your questions and your gifts and uh, come alongside us and, and wrestle with this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. let's sit in it together and see how it all pieces together. So that's a bit on uh, kind of the tension of the age of the earth and the age of the universe. Uh, for me personally, and kind of the, the way that I interpret scripture, I don't really see any problem or tension, but I understand how people do. Um, and we will uh, pick up next week with sort of the dawn of humanity and the origins of life on earth. And I think that's actually ripe uh, for, a, for a much more intense debate. Uh, but we'll talk about that uh, next week. So thanks so much for listening. If you made it this far, uh, continue to text in your questions and we'll uh, do the best that we can to answer them. Uh, And we uh, will end with this. May the Lord uh, bless you and keep you. Uh, May he uh, turn his face to shine upon you. May he turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. Until next time.
Thanks again for listening to the Q&A podcast. If you have questions you'd like answered, text in your question to 208-503-3865.